This podcast could potentially have adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly the possibility of sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, Drinking With Authors fans. We have some pretty big news from your host here, Erica Lance. We are moving to change the format of the show to be one episode. So there's a few episodes that record the old way that we're doing the new way. And that's what you're listening to. So thank you. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And we love having you as fans. On to the show. Welcome to Drinking With Authors. I'm your host, Erica Lance. Today, we have a special kind of event and a demon cat in the background. Um, But the special event is we have multiple people on. Very, very cool. So welcome, Robert Crane and Teresa Griffin-Kennedy. Hi, cheers. Welcome. Nice to be here. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, let's talk about what we're drinking for a moment. I um, have discovered and I'm kind of in love with this thing called Nixie, which is a sparkling water. Apparently, it's organic which I think water should be, but whatever. Um, this one is watermelon mint, but I put gin in it because that's what I do. Anyway, I'm enjoying this immensely. Robert, what are you drinking there? I am drinking Kettle One on the Rocks in a, in a Glenlivet glass. Wow. Oh, multi-drinks, multi-drinks. I like it. Um, I don't know if you can read that or not, but it says the, the Glenlivet. Yeah. I can kind of read it, but I, I trust you. I trust you in your glasses. Teresa, what are you drinking with us? I have my container here uh, with uh, my Vanport container. <laughs> it's a business in Portland. Uh, I'm drinking a uh, uh, mimosa with ice cubes. <laughs> mimosa with ice cubes. I don't drink very often. <laughs> I'm not even but, sure what how that would. Okay, I'm going to trust you on that because I'm. A, I like, I like but, it a little diluted. <laughs> I can understand that. She's like, I can't get too drunk in the first 15 minutes. That would be bad. I'm a total lightweight. <laughs> That's okay. I have a couple of. Uh, one of my co-hosts is allergic to alcohol, so she normally drinks tea. Shout out to JM. Okay, so. <laughs> You guys wanted to come on. There is actually technically three of you. There's one here in spirit, right? Yes. And his name is Joe Coyle? Yes. Joe Coyle. So tell me about the three of you, the the tripod of epicness. Explain. Do you want to start, Bob? I'll I'll start. No. uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Teresa on the internet where I guess a lot of people meet nowadays. And uh, we started sharing, Yeah, I I saw the stuff she was writing and she goes across the board. She writes fiction, nonfiction, reportage, uh, poetry, memoir, everything. I was reading some of her stuff and I went, wow, this is really cool. Then I sent her a story that I, pulled out of the uh, cardboard box and she read it. And uh, because uh, Teresa has her own publishing company, Oregon uh, Greystone Press, uh, she puts together, you know, different uh, books and different subjects and uh, genres. And we start talking about doing a short story book together. Oh, And here it is. Whoops. There it is. And it happens to feature a photograph. 
cover photograph, I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. By Joe Coyle, the aforementioned Joe Coyle, who's not with us today. But uh, we, uh, Teresa and I traded stories. We liked what we were reading. And we said, let's expand this into uh, more people. And go ahead, Teresa. Yeah, uh, Bob actually was able to connect with so many wonderful people. And Joe Coyle was just one of them. He's an actor. And I Googled him. I did research. And he's an amazing actor. He's been in some really important films. Uh, he's a character actor. He's worked with everyone, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, all the major stars. And he's a really great actor, but he's also a writer. And uh, so... Uh, Bob got me in touch with him and really Bob was the backbone of this entire project because of the people he knows and um, his old friends and we got really amazing blurbs for the book um, but I wanted to put together an anthology and so I, I did a shout out here in Portland and didn't get any responses which is typical um, <laughs> Portland is a really oh. small town and oh, cool. um, and Bob and I were friends on Facebook and had been chatting and he said I have this short story, you know, would you like to read it? And I said, sure. And so he mailed it. And I have actually have the original over here in my file cabinet. It's yellowed. It's probably 25 <laughs> or 30 years old. Uh, and it's an amazing story because when you read between the lines, you see Bob's history in the story. And that's what made it so special. Um, so this was a really demanding project because it was my first anthology. I had some issues with uh, our, the graphic designer who had some health problems. And so there was a lot of touch and go and it was very, very stressful. <laughs> yeah. I learned a lot from it though, but Bob was the backbone of the entire project. Wow. So. Wow. So you, yeah. Yeah. You, you and I was the editor. <laughs> yeah, you made it. Yeah, you can. I don't know if you can read this, but it says edited by. Can you read that? Yeah. 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 So um, what what started this entire anthology project? Like, what was the genesis idea? What was we're going to sit down and write about this? I, I have a publishing company as well. and We put out anthology calls every year really to give new authors a chance to get published. Cause you know, we all know it's exciting when you get a story and you're published, you're like, oh, yeah. Woo I mean, it's great when it's a book, but if it's a short story, yeah. you're like, I'm published, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, and I know how we come up with some of the ideas mainly because of things that we find funny. Like I did an anthology called super useless and I had everybody write stories about useless superpowers that people had. <laughs> That's great. That's a great idea. Yeah. But where, what was the genesis of this um, anthology? For me, it was, I just wanted to do an anthology because they're so popular in Portland. And I have always enjoyed working with other writers. And I take, um, I, I, I just wanted to create an anthology. And I had uh, wanted to call it uh, by the title of my short story, my long short story, which is in the book, and that's called uh, Squirrely Conversation Outside Bishop's House. So that was the original title. It was going to be my short story. So, you know, I was the one doing it. So I decided that would be the title. And uh, we, we talked about the title later, and Joe and Bob came up with some really great suggestions. And we, and I, and I realized, you know, I, I've always known how important it is to collaborate. So I wanted everyone who was involved to know this was a collaboration. We were going to all work together. I wasn't going to be, you know, the end. I wasn't going to be bossy or anything like that, as, as some editors can be. 
Um, and I wanted it to be more like a collaboration, but. She is a taskmaster. She is a taskmaster. As, as one taskmaster yeah. to another, I appreciate oh, yeah. that greatly. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I, I, think, I think authors need that. You need somebody to be like, hey, get this done. Because otherwise, we're great at loitering around as authors. Well, we're like, yeah. we're going to go do this thing over here, have a sandwich. And watch Netflix and not do anything we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm a really good editor, but um, I have certain rules for myself. Never rush anything and don't rush other writers because when you rush, that's when mistakes happen. And really the biggest challenge of this anthology was the graphic designer had some health issues. And so um, he wasn't able to do his best. And so I had to get another graphic designer to finish the project. And once I did that, it was smooth sailing. That's the frustrating part for me as a, as a, as a publisher and an editor, I can do everything else except graphic design. And that's the most expensive part of publishing because it's between three and $5,000 for a book. And that's the most frustrating part for me is it's always coming up with that money to pay the graphic designer because I can do all the other stuff. You know, yeah. yeah. And the, the, the thing that sold me on Teresa, I mean, I, I mentioned to you about all the styles that she writes in, and they're all excellent. I, I've seen across the board and uh, some of the, the other books that she's done for uh, her company. Here's what sold me. She writes sex really well. <laughs> really oh. well. Oh, man. I was sitting here reading these short stories and there's, you know, some sexual content within the story. I'm going, this is not embarrassing. This is really, really good. And that sold Teresa for me. I said, yeah, I, I want to work with this woman. Man, she's good. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And I, I love the giggling. The giggling is absolutely making this. And the <laughs> lovely shade of red you're turning that is matching your lipstick. I do enjoy that as well. I say that only because um, one of my partners in crime is an erotic writer as well. So am I. And it, you know what it's interesting is it def not everybody can write sex and not no. everybody can write sex well. No. no. Exactly. You know? No. So yeah, there it's just there's a, a Kindle unlimited plethora of badly written sex. Oh, and then there's fifty shades of gray. Yeah. And there's so, also the there's the uh, the bad sex award in England, yeah. which is very famous <laughs> yeah. for uh, authors that write particularly bad sexual, yeah. you know, content. Yeah, I didn't know there was a bad sex award. I'm gonna look oh, this yeah. up. Oh, it's hilarious! It's really funny. <laughs> Teresa, do you do you remember one offhand? I, I I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you remember one of the really bad? Uh, Sex award. Oh gosh. Um, it was probably six or seven years ago. I was writing an essay called Sex Writing in Literature because I, I, I started doing research and because I was thinking about writing a, a book about sex, which is basically my 2021 first novel, Talionic Night in Portland, a love story. And uh, so I was doing research and I came across all these articles that were written by men saying that women couldn't write sexual content. And I was like, what? Yeah. So I got really incensed and I spent about a year writing this essay, sex <laughs> writing in literature, and I still have it. It's on my Medium or my Substack page. And I um, found this 
award, you know, the, the bad sex award. And they were using these mostly English writers uh, to really kind of put on the spot and humiliate. Um, and it just, it made me really angry, but I can't remember a specific one. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Just, yeah, if you could remember. Yeah, but yeah I mean, you know, comparing women's genitalia to oysters and things like that. I think oh, yeah. Stott was mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is um, an amazingly funny podcast. I think they're wrapping their final season or they just did called My Dad Wrote a Porno. And it, wow. it, it's an English guy whose retired father wrote a pornographic novel wow. and it is terrible. And yeah. the podcast is him reading this novel. Like he reads a chapter a podcast with friends of his, right? He reads the book aloud to two friends of his. And like one of the first things his dad compares women's breasts to is pomegranates. Oh, they were like bad. two dangling bad. pomegranates. Oh God. Just for the record, no wow. woman wants her breasts compared to dangling pomegranates. <laughs> yeah. And it's said in a way that's supposed to be alluring, but oh. it is a it is if you ever get a chance to listen, it is one of the most hysterical because his dad put this book up on um Amazon by himself, you know, posted it there, and they started doing this podcast. And of course, the book started selling like crazy because everybody's like, What the hell is this book? Right. Yeah. yeah. And so his dad continued to write them. Oh. He didn't get any better because his dad doesn't get that they're kind of making fun of him. Like, and they're not doing it in a mean way, but it's just like comparing women's genitalia to oysters. Oh. I do remember, I do remember one section of this article on the Bad Sex Award, and one of the authors was a, a male, a man author from England, and he had written a passage. Uh, comparing this male character's sexual prowess to being that of a, of a jackhammer. He was a uh, jackhammer. Um, and, wow. and that's another one. Never mention, never compare sex. <laughs> Use the word jackhammer to, you know, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. My my dad didn't, didn't write pornos. He just filmed them. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, so your dad was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> he so, didn't even tape them. Yeah. Mr. Crane, who was your father? Uh, my dad was the late Hogan's Heroes star, Bob Crane. Oh, wow. I, I grew up watching, had a huge crush on. He was the quintessential cool guy, handsome, funny, smart. Yeah. Thanks, Teresa. Thank yeah, snap. Crushing, crushing. He, wow. He, he was a great guy. He just, he should not have been married. He was married twice. Um, but back in the 60s and 70s, long before most of your audience was born, uh, there was the videotape explosion. Oh, what, what yeah. pray tell is a videotape, Robert? You got to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. See, you're you're too young for this. No, I'm, 1973, my friend, 1973. Uh, I remember videos. I remember the great VHS beta tape war. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I sure. remember that. The yeah. absolute wrong product won that one. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so every everybody got a home video unit because it was instantaneous. You could do whatever you want and watch it back immediately. So, you know, 
people, some people took it to the next step, including my father and uh, videotaped uh, sexual encounters and, you know, women who wanted to pose in front of the camera so they could watch it back instantly. And, you know, it was like, it was like a moving Polaroid for anybody who remembers Polaroids. They were still instantaneous images, but this was thousands of instantaneous images that you could watch back like that. So everybody was doing all sorts of, you know, nefarious, non-sexual and sexual things on video. Well, I think that any product like that, people's first inclination is to go, how do we use this for sex? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like that's like the automatic thing. Like, well, how do we do that? Yeah. So, yeah. So, but what got you into, let's, let's, we're going to take both your stories here, but, um, but what got you into writing? What made you decide to start writing? Uh, Well, I, I admired my dad's drive and uh you know he he was talented in certain areas he was uh started on, a, on i'll make this short That's okay. started on the radio and he was an incredible radio personality of the 50s and 60s in connecticut which is where i was born and we moved to los angeles and he was on the uh, one of the major stations in Los Angeles. And then from there, he went into acting. And then the other highlight, of course, as far as I'm concerned, was Colonel Hogan, which my father was born to play. Uh, and he just had that, you know, like Teresa alluded to, uh, the quick, sarcastic wit, good-looking guy. Uh, it just all came together. And, of course, the rest of the cast and everything, and they – you know, such a bizarre idea at that time uh, for Hogan's Heroes, but it all worked. And those those were really the the two highlights of his work as far as I was concerned. So, and that caused you to want to do writing? Oh, yeah, I totally forgot your question. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's, cheers. Yeah. That's yeah, what cheers. we do here. You know, the kettle wine is already kicking in. Uh, no, yes. As I knew I was not an actor, I watched my dad do it. He was very comfortable and relaxed being in front of a camera. I knew that was not me. So what what else do you do? You write about it. So I stayed behind the camera and started, uh, I was very fortunate to, uh, back in the days of magazines, hook up with magazines like We, O-U-I, which was owned by Playboy. Uh, Playboy magazine and a bunch of others, Penthouse and places that publish. They happen to have, I know, uh, nude women in in them, but they also publish articles and interviews, which is what I was interested in. Getting information out of people in a either an article or a Q and A, and that's how I started. I, I loved getting info out of people, like you're doing with us. Yes. Yes. No, I, I, it, it, I think it's incredibly fun to do that. Yeah. So what transitioned you into writing books then? Uh, just to take it longer. Like uh, for instance, uh, uh, one of the people in, in our uh, short story book. Here you go. I like your same shameless plugs. You're doing a good job with that. 
is uh, <laughs> Christopher Fryer, who I've worked with on three books, um, Bruce Dern, Jack Nicholson, and another shameless plug. I just happen to have these books, you know, close by. Crane. There Crane. we go. Yeah, great book. Um, and uh, we worked together on those. And we, in the case of Bruce Stern, we interviewed him a couple of times for different magazines. And then we thought, well, let's, he's got so many stories. This guy is just a treasure trove of Hollywood stories. Let's expand it. So we talked him into a book and it, we came out with his autobiography uh, a number of years ago. And just to take it longer, because there's so, so many stories in it with these people like Nicholson and what have you. Uh, I worked on a book uh, with Tom Mankiewicz. He was uh, part of the, Man the Mankiewicz family. His dad was Joe, the director, writer. And he has, again, just a treasure trove of stories. So uh, I had interviewed him, and then we expanded Tom Mankiewicz into a book and uh, just to give more space for more stories. So that's how the books uh, started. Very cool. So then, Teresa, where does your journey begin, my friend? Um, I felt the inclination to write when I was 12. I always wanted to write. I was a reader. My father, you know, my, my father, uh, was in world war II. He was 46 when I was born. So he was already a mature adult and, uh, he was a reader. My mother was a reader. I was just constantly exposed to them reading. And so I became a reader and I, I felt the inclination to start writing when I was 12 and I had a little diary. And of course I'm the seventh of nine Irish Catholic children. Oh, so wow. My sisters got into my diary and made comments and <laughs> that ended that. So when I finally left home when I was 18 and moved in with my first husband, um, that's when I really started to seriously write. Um, and my father who, uh, his name was Dorsey Griffin. He encouraged me to write. He was also a writer and an author. He wrote um, a couple of books on Oregon history. He wrote a few poems. And um, so he was always encouraging me from about the time I was 18 or 19 to write and to go to college, which eventually I did. Um, but yeah, that's basically how it started for me. I so what was your first published work then, Teresa? What was the first like real, well, for realsy published work? Um, my dad told me, number one, you have to have range. He always pressed that idea. Um, and he told me, you know, when you can, you need to create a website. So I created a website. I've been online since 2007. Um, and I wrote and published letters to the editor with newspapers, personal essays, um, historical profiles, things like that on my, my website. But I didn't actually publish a book until 2016 when I co-authored a book called Murder and Scandal in Prohibition Portland, Sex, Vice, and Misdeeds in Mayor Baker's Reign. Uh, really Easy for you to say. I was like, that. that is a mouthful. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Wow. I am a ridiculous mouthful of a title, but it sounds cool. Yeah. Well, you know, it was all right. It could have been better. Um, I, I co-authored it with my dear friend, J.D. Chandler, who passed away about two years ago at the age of 60. He didn't take oh, care wow. of himself. And I'm still mad at him. <laughs> um, but we co-authored it together and I wanted to go over it a couple more times and he didn't. You know, he, we had to keep the deadline. Deadline's always so important to him. And 
it's an okay book. Um, it could have been better, but that was the first book. And then later that year, I published um, my first solo book, which was my book of poetry, uh, which is called um, A Blue Reverie and Smoke. Um, and the, the, uh, I was able to get a, a man named Dan Raphael to write the foreword. And Dan Raphael is a really, really uh, prominent poet in Portland, Oregon. Anyone who's in the poetry scene knows who Dan is. So I asked him if he would look at it. And he said, well, I can't promise you anything. I'll have to read it first. Um, and he, I sent it to him and he read it and he loved it. And he wrote a really wonderful foreword for the book. Um, and then after that, I wrote um, my book of short stories in 2018, which was um, Burnside Field Blizzard and Selected Stories. And that was selected as a finalist for the Next Generation Indie Book Award 2019. And then in 2021, I published my first novel, um, 2021, and that's called uh, Taylanic Night in Portland, A Love Story. And that was long listed with the Clue Award and the Somerset Award. Um, it didn't win anything, but, you know, being long listed in two national book awards is okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, no, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> and then in 2022, we published um, uh, the anthology uh, Beyond Where the Buses Run Stories through Oregon Greystone Press. And then I was also, uh, I had a book published through the History Press again, uh, The Lost Restaurants of Portland, Oregon. Um, so, and that's done pretty well. I'm not writing for them anymore because they don't pay authors enough. They pay authors 9% and I'm just, I'm not going to waste my time, <laughs> yeah. but I am working on a second restaurant book that I might finish in the next year to 18 months. And I will be publishing that through Oregon Greystone Press because yeah. I want more than 9%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting you bring that up because I have to say with 9%, History Press is one of the large imprints because they do publish a lot. I have a friend that writes with them yeah. uh, and he writes um, Erie, Florida and Freaky Florida is actually one of my co-hosts too. Um, but they uh, pay a lot more than some of the other big ones do. Yeah, yeah. You know? I, I hear you. I hear yeah. you. <laughs> Oh, um, that's always interesting, but that seems like a very um, interesting journey starting from 12 years old to getting into, do you think COVID had anything to do with your books actually getting done? I'm just asking because a lot of people manage to get stuff done during sort of the COVID time well, period. I, I know. And I, I think that a lot of those, some of those people are people that aren't really longtime writers. They're the kind of people that, well, I've always wanted to write, th write this book. I'll do it because COVID's here because I was being published before COVID and after COVID. But um, yeah, I, um, COVID made things harder because I was finishing the restaurant book during that time. And it definitely made things harder. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I don't know. What made you get into publishing? Well, my husband, Don Dupay is a retired police detective with the Portland Police Bureau. And he wrote his memoir, uh, which is called, uh, um, Behind the Badge in River City, a Portland Police Memoir. He wrote that in 1991 and 1992, about 235 pages of typed uh, content. And when we got together and we became friends and later we became closer, <laughs> um, we're going to use out. quotations. It's fine. 
we're, we're all getting the intimation. The Continue. <laughs> yeah, he brought out the manuscript uh, that he had typed. You know, it was in a box. You know, old school and. And I looked at it, and he had—he's a prolific writer, and he had written a novel, a, a novelized account of the life of a pedophile, uh, called *Touched*. Um, and he wanted me to focus on that. And when I saw both of the manuscripts together, I knew that the the police memoir was the golden egg. So I said, we really need to focus on this. And it wasn't publishable at the time. It was a really good long kind of outline, but it needed to be fleshed out a lot. It needed a lot of editing. So we worked on it for two and a half years. And then in 2015, when it was finished, we started submitting it and we knew that it wasn't going to get, it wasn't going to be received well because he's basically sharing all of this information about police corruption with the Portland Police Bureau and the things he experienced. He was on from 1961 to 1978 when he resigned because the job was really killing him. So I knew that we weren't going to be, it wasn't going to be easy to be published. We sent it around. We got the usual rejections. Um, there's a, a press with Portland State University. Um, I can't remember what they're called, but they, they looked at it for a while and then they passed out. They looked at it for about three months and we were emailing back and forth and they finally passed too, because it's too controversial. They, they didn't want to get involved. And so we realized really the only way we were going to see this book uh, come out as if we published it ourselves. So we got in touch with a woman um, named Patricia Marshall. Um, she runs Luminaire Press and she taught me a lot. And she said, you know, you don't want to self-publish. She said, you want to create a name. Um, and I came up with Oregon Greystone Press and she helped us publish the book. And that was really how it started. Um, and he published his second book, which was a novel in 2019. Um, called Frank's Revenge, Albina After Dark, which is kind of a novelized account of various things he saw. Um, but it's also, you know, it's a, it's a novel, it's, it's fiction. Um, and he's in the process of, uh, we're in the process of publishing his third book, which is called The Tainted Rose, Stories from a Portland Detective, also nonfiction. So um, yeah, Don and I uh, decided that we would take William Randolph Hearst's advice when he said, if you own the newspaper, you can write what you want. <laughs> so we, yeah. we're like, okay, we need to take the bull by the horn, you know? Yeah. Oh my God, I like that. I love that you said that. Hey, listeners, you know me, Eric Lance. You're just listening to me in the podcast that you have. But guess what? I'm doing something new. Yeah, she's joining me, Mark Muncy, the author of the Erie, Florida book series in Erie, Appalachia. And we are hosting a new podcast called Erie Travels. Woo-woo, Erie Travels, which covers things like ghosts, cryptids, weird stuff, UFOs, men in black, all kinds of fun things that people talk about and I'm sure you've discussed with friends. Yep, and you can listen to us on your favorite podcast platform of choice or find us at eerietravels.com and join in the fun and all the spooky goodness. And of course, Mark, what do we always say? We'll see you on the other side. So you've written this anthology. Let's talk about gathering all the authors to do this because I we actually haven't on this show talked a lot about getting together a bunch of people to do something at the same time, because it's hard enough trying to get yourself to do something at the same time, yeah. but other humans, right? 
So um, what, how did you solicit the stories? Well, it helped that Bob knows everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Bob was really the one that was able to get all the great writers and uh, yeah, it just, it just works out so well, you know? Well, the, the easiest part was Teresa and me working together. Then we, once we got other people involved, it becomes, you know, complicated. But I think, I, 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 my opinion is, I think we got some really good uh, and varied styles out yeah. there. Um, uh, the aforementioned uh, Chris Fryer, the aforementioned Joe Coyle. Um, then there was a, a woman named Kari Hildebrand. And I, I found these in a box and I sent them to Teresa and I said, use any of them, use none of them, whatever you want to do. And she liked four of them because they're really short. So they became uh, kind of buffers between the longer pieces um, yeah. of the book. Because uh, you you have, uh, Teresa's got two stories and, uh, you know, so we have to space those out so they weren't just back to back. And, uh, you know, so the way it worked out, I, I thought was uh, kind of good with buffering and, uh, different styles and like that. Yeah, Carrie Hildebrand's stories um, uh, were really just very good, very original, very very touching, very uh, sweet. I, I really enjoyed them, and so I, I think I think you did send me four, and I think I used all of them. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Three of them are shorter, and then one of them one of them is a longer short story she wrote. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, and then Christopher Fryer's story is the first story in the book, um, uh, Hunting License. It's amazing. He's such a great writer. It's really, really good. And then uh, Joe Coyle's story is, uh, it was a very interesting story and I had to read it a couple of times. Um, I'm still reading. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's very mysterious and, yeah. and, and really makes you think yeah. Um, because yeah, he, he's a great writer and um, and then, of course, uh, Bob's story, uh, Wingding, uh, a wonderful, wonderful story. Very long, short yeah. story <laughs> and just a wonderful story that a lot of the best critics who provided blurbs were able to read and really see things in between the lines, you know. And, yeah, it's just a wonderful story. So that has to be interesting, um, being an editor. When did you start editing, Teresa? Well, you know, my father goes back to my dad. Um, He told me when I was 18, you know, Teresa, I think you could be a writer. And we talked about it. He said, you have to start keeping a journal every day. You have to write every day just about what's going on in your life. And I did that for 15 years um, before I finally went into college when I was 35 and completed my college education. Um, But he, uh, he told me, he gave me so much good advice over the years and uh, I'm sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> um, I love wherever you were going with that, but it was about when you started editing. When I started editing, okay. I remember, <laughs> I, remember, I remember it well. When I started reading like an editor is when I realized I could edit. And that was probably about 15 years ago. I'd be reading a novel or a book and I'd think, that's dumb. I wouldn't have written it that way. And so, um, so I really actually started editing in 2015. Well, no, in 2013, 
when I started working on Don's memoir. Um, we worked on that for two and a half years. I had to, I had to kind of, uh, I was basically in charge of the whole project um, and it was really demanding. We had to go over everything again and again and it was hard for him because these were horrible memories and he was, uh, oftentimes he would get upset and he'd have to take a break. Um, that was when I started editing. And, you know, it's a good book. It's filled with mistakes. Um, we did do a second edition in 2016, the following year, um, where I was able to correct some of the mistakes and we were able to include an additional story and include additional photographs, but it's a quintessential first book. It's got the punctuations crazy, that's on me. Um, I, I'm still learning how to use apostrophes and commas, and uh, but that was basically my first uh, attempt at, at editing. But I've learned over the years how to edit well, and it just means going over things and doing a line by line edit 50 or 60 times. For example, my book, uh, my novel, uh, Taylanic Night in Portland, you know, there were a couple people wanted to know who, who is your editor? You know, it's so tight. Who was your editor? And I, I'm, I'm like, they're, I, I'm the editor. Nobody edited that book. I did. Um, you can do it. People say, oh, you can't edit your own work. You have to have a professional editor. Not if you're, not if you're an editor, you, you can do it. I've read several books over the years written by authors, um, who maybe only wrote one or two books, but they worked on it for 10 years. So by the time they're done with it, it's as clean and tight as it's ever going to be. And uh, that's basically what I've learned about, about editing. You just have to go over it again and again and again and hope that you were able to get a good graphic designer. <laughs> I, I think that's true, but I will say this. I think you're a little bit of an exception and not the rule. One is I don't think anybody true. should take 10 yeah. years with their book must exactly. go faster. And yes. I I have met many editors that can't edit their own work because I think it takes a certain mindset to be able to relook at your stuff. Even as a writer, you know, going through it certain number of times, at least like for me, I start getting like, I'm, I'm not even seeing what's on the page anymore. Even if I do the different font and print it out and all the other stuff, yeah. I'm like, I have to sometimes just let it go because otherwise I over edit my work. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's exactly right. And I agree with you there um, because uh, especially young people in their twenties and thirties that want to be famous, you know, and they're, they, I've been, they say, you know, I've been writing for six years and I'm not famous yet. I've <laughs> made a million dollars, you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's true. Um, and I also agree that most, my, most books shouldn't take more than about three years to write. That's generally how long it takes me. It took me three years to write my novel about three and a half years. It took me three and a half years to write that restaurant book, which, uh, that was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it shouldn't take it shouldn't take 10 years. But I do know of a couple of writers in Portland that published their first book. One woman, I think she said she was working on hers for 12 years. So when wow. she published it, it was it was really, really tight. And it's a charming book. Um, it's very charming, but definitely not written the way I would write a book. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and I think that's, you know, people different people like to read different styles. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I, I think that different, and that's why all different kinds of writers have different voices, which can be amazing, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, so. I, I love to read, I love to read everything. I think I've got about 1200 books here at the house and I just, I love everything, nonfiction, fiction, poetry, 
um, biography. I just love to read all the time. If I don't read all the time, I get really nervous. I have a lot of nervous energy, um, but yeah, writing is just, for me, it's, and I know that this is true for Bob too. It's, it's just, you know, I think we're both introverts and it's just a way to express yourself. It's a way to yeah. get your feelings and thoughts out without killing someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good thing. You should probably not kill people. <laughs> I've discovered that's frowned upon or illegal. I'm not sure which it is, but it's one of those two. Yeah. But, uh, but I have to write every day. I, I definitely have to write every day. And uh, so. Well, that's, I mean, I, I think that's, I think authors should write every day. I think even if it's for 10 minutes, you should sit down and write every day because okay. that's how you actually get work done is by doing it. You know, if you wait to have a perfect environment to write, then it's, it's never, never exactly. a good thing. Yeah. I've done some of my best writing in chaos with dogs mm -hmm. barking and cats jumping on me and the phone yeah. ringing, you know, um, and, you know, I, I need things like I like to listen to classical music or jazz or blues that helps a lot. Um, coffee helps, but not too much <laughs> chocolate. Chocolate yeah. is nice. Chocolate is a great motivator. I'm a big <laughs> fan of the chocolate motivation. <laughs> so let's talk about what's coming up for you guys. So, uh, Bob, what is next up for you? I'm, I'm working on a, a piece right now called My Unhollywood Family. My Unhollywood Family. Okay. And I focus on... I've had four parents, my two blood parents, a stepfather who just passed away and a stepmother. Okay. And I'm still trying to make sense of this whole thing. I, I thought I knew, you know, well, I won't speak for everybody, but I thought my parents were the rock, the rock. They know everything. They're my parents, you know, then they divorced and we went, what? Oh, okay. Wait a minute. And as I said earlier, my dad should never have been married anyway. Then he married a an actress who was on Hogan's, and they had a child together. And it, it and then he was uh, killed, and it didn't last long. Uh, in the meantime, my mom married uh, a. I love this. Uh, uh, the Hollywood Reporter used to say, "Non-pro." You're a non. She oh. he married a non-pro. Like How you're, dare you're, she? You're just a nothing. Like you're just totally worthless. But my uh, my stepdad Chuck, uh, just a wonderful person, just died ninety five years old. He stepped into a family. He had no children of his own from a previous marriage. He steps into a marriage situa situation with my mom. He picks up three kids immediately, me and two sisters. Oh, wow. He picks, he picks up an ex-husband who still talks to my mom. He picks up my dad's brother, who's still there, his mother, who is still there. He's got this whole collection of people now. We call him St. Charles. We call him Chuck, St. Charles, because he's a saint and put up with all of this. And now I'm trying to figure out this whole thing in my old age. Do we really ever know our parents? 
And if, you know, when the divorce bomb went off, that shook our foundation. It was like, what? We were the first people on our block going through a divorce. Um, wow. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's embarrassing. It's, you know, people look at you, well, what's wrong with these people? You know, oh, they're showbiz carny people. You know, that's that's where they're from. And then we had uh, my stepdad step in and hook up with my mom. And this guy was the total opposite of show business. He couldn't care less about show business. He, he and my mom would see a movie and I'd go, Chuck, what did you guys see? I don't know. Ask your mom. <laughs> Who was in it? The only person he ever knew was Clint Eastwood. If it was any other actor, actress, ask your mother. I, 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 and it was such a refreshing thing for our family, like this real non-show business person that uh, we just loved him so much. Anyway, long story short, uh, the, this is what I'm, I'm looking at now and writing about. That sounds wonderful. I love that title. Yeah, <laughs> that is a great title. I love that. I, also, The Child of Divorce. I was six when my parents divorced in, I think, 1971 or 72. And I, I honestly thought it was my fault. I thought, uh, you know, because back then, nobody talked to you. They didn't talk to me. They yeah. didn't sit me down and they didn't talk to any of us and say, we just don't get along. All of a sudden, my dad just left, you know. Oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah. And how, how long did you carry that on your shoulders that it was your fault? Oh, gosh, probably for a six or seven years, oh, you know, and then I, I eventually, you know, I, you grow up and you realize it's not my fault, but it, I mean, when it happened, I, I really did think it was my fault Yeah, yeah. that I had done something. I'd been naughty, you know, yeah. it must've been me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I'm, my parents divorced when I was really young too. So, you know, I think it's, it's very interesting also when you think of how family dynamics like that have changed you know what I mean and it sort of cyclically it went from the 50s housewife sort of thing yeah you know to um you know free love and all this stuff and oh wait you don't have to get married forever like I think it was a thing that you did have to get married forever you know yeah that's what yeah, you did and if you didn't, it was like, what's wrong with you, you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I agree 100%. So, um, Teresa, what's next on the books for you, my friend? Well, uh, we're working right now to finish um, Dawn's third book, which is um, The Tainted Rose Stories from a Portland Detective. There's four stories. The first story is about some jewel thieves he arrested. The second story is about the troubled women of Albina. So women that he arrested, women that he had to deal with. He's very compassionate towards women. The third story is about his black girlfriend who was murdered in 1980. Um, and it's, uh, her name was Artent Thomas. She was really beautiful. And she was viciously murdered um, by an ex-boyfriend who found out she was engaged to a white man who used to be a cop. And so that's the third oh. story. The fourth story is about how heroin came to Portland, Oregon. Um, and so it's basically about his career. So that's the book we're working on right now. Um, I'm also, I just started writing um, a second book on restaurant history, uh, which I am calling A Second Helping, 
revisiting Portland's lost restaurants. So I figure that'll be done probably in a year and a half. And I also have a book that I'm almost finished with that I've been working on for about five years called uh, We Learn to Live in the Castle Stories. And it's, um, it's basically personal essays, uh, memoir stories about my life um, from the time I was two years old and I was placed in a foster home for five months after my mother had a nervous breakdown to, you know, just recently uh, when my older sister Mary passed away a couple of years ago. So it's got um, 12 stories in it um, that span my life. So I've been working on that for about five years. And that's, those are the next th two, three projects. <laughs> so you're not busy at all. Neither one of yeah. you are busy. I see that. You guys yeah. should really get writing more. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. just throwing that up. <laughs> and, and then it, in between, she throws out, you know, nonfiction reporting stuff I see all the time on the Internet. It's like, when did yeah. you have time to do this? You know, it's come on. Well, I, I did just recently publish a, a long essay. I think it's 17,000 words, which I've been working on for a year and a half. Um, it's called it's, it's basically about a notorious 1973 double homicide in Portland, Oregon, of these two black women. And they were murdered by a corrupt police officer who was also black and a pimp and a drug dealer. Um, and so I just published that about, oh, five days ago. I've been working on it for a year and a half, interviewing the family, looking up PPB personnel files. And, and that was a huge project. It was really hard. It was emotionally just really kind of taxing. And I'm so glad it's over with. I still may write a sh much shorter follow-up essay on it, but yeah, I, I try to put things out there on my Substack page um, when I can, especially if it's something short and political because the politics in Portland are so messed up and Portland is just such a different city now. It's not safe. Um, <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> oh, wow. But yeah, Bob is right. I, I do. See, that's the thing. You know, I have to, I just have to be doing something like that or I get anxious. <laughs> well, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with being productive. Like people always say to me how fast I'm going all the time and doing stuff and I always say that's cool. I can rest when I'm dead. Yeah. You're absolutely. Yeah. I can't. Like I'll have plenty of time. <laughs> okay. You know, when you, when, well, go uh, ahead. When you think about it, when you think about it all you really leave behind is your body of work. Yeah, that's the it's, most important thing. You know? I, I tell people the thing that you get to make every day is memories. Yeah. Like it's not stuff, it's memories. Let's go make some memories. Because um, I had somebody tell me a, a, a long time ago, um, it was actually an ex-boyfriend of mine had gone to visit his dad who was in a nursing home. And there was an older black gentleman who had the room across the hall and he'd see him sitting on like those little walker seats, you know, like in the hallway watching people and his dad was taken for a test and he was talking to the guy and the guy said to him, and I'm paraphrasing, um, but basically, you know, make sure you're making memories every day because it doesn't no matter how much money you have when you're sitting in this chair later, the only riches you're going to have are the memories. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You know, uh, I, I've always felt that to be very true. So might as well create memories for you and memories for other people, because people read these works 
And you never know how they impact you, those people necessarily. Sometimes you get feedback, which is wonderful. And then, but it's impacting people, even though you might not hear about it. Yeah. 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 I I, I like reading uh, dead authors and kind of following through their, their list of books or articles and see how they got to the last piece. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Drinking With Authors fans. This is your host, Erica Lance. Because of the change of the format of the show, welcome to the literary briefs portion. Enjoy. Okay. So the first question that is always asked, and I'm going to start with you, Robert. What is your favorite book of all time? Oh, my God. May I give you a couple? Yeah, of course you can give me a couple. It's your podcast. You can do whatever you want. All right. Uh, I'm going to go nonfiction. I love nonfiction. Uh, and I'll, let's see, I'll go with three authors, if that's okay. Are we going with authors or books? Well, can okay, I? Okay, go with authors. You're just, to, okay, Robert, I'll you're breaking all the rules here. That's fine. Go ahead, do what you're going to do. Hitch, Hitch 22. Hitch oh. 22. Christopher Hitchens. Okay. Fabulous. Nonfiction essays. Uh, pieces about his life. He was an English writer. He died too early. Just an incredible brain. Uh, a former, you'll like this, Teresa, former magazine editor, Terry McDonald, called My Accidental Life. Uh, fabulous. Stories about all the famous and infamous writers that he's worked with over the years and stories about them. And again, all nonfiction. And my third nonfiction uh, by a mainly fiction writer, John Le Carré. John Le Carré had a book out uh, a few years before he passed away called The Pigeon Tunnel. The Pigeon Tunnel. And that's all stories about, it's nonfiction. It's all stories about famous people and, again, infamous people that he met over the years as he's doing research for his fiction work. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I like it. Teresa, what about you? Well, I'm going to follow Bob's uh, pattern here and I'm going to go with with three. Um, Okay. For a long time, these are three books of fiction. For a long time, um, I love nonfiction, but strangely enough, I I resonate more with fiction. But for a long time, my favorite book of all time, and I think it really still is my favorite book, my favorite novel, is called Suicide Blonde by Darcy Steinke. She's a New York writer. And I read it for the first time in the 90s and was blown away. It's about a girl named Jessie and her bisexual boyfriend, Dell, and living in San Francisco and everything that they go through. And it's very dark. It's very nihilistic. And I just really connected with it. I read it. I've read it, gosh, 12 times, maybe. Um, It's probably my favorite novel. My second, one of my second favorite novels is by a, uh, an English uh, author called, her name is Julie Meyerson. It's called Me and the Fat Man. It's just one of those weird uh, novels with just a small number of characters. Um, it's a girl who works as a waitress in a restaurant and she goes to a park and she prostitutes herself part-time. <laughs> And she's got a a past that's kind of muddled and she finds out that her mother abandoned her for about a year in Greece. And it's just this weird novel. Um, And then 
another favorite novel that I really resonated with um, in the 90s, mainly for the last two pages of it, um, it's Scott Turow's novel, Presumed Innocent. There's oh, wow. the last two pages of it, there's this one section where he's riffing on Carolyn Polhemus and what it was that drew, drew her, uh, drew her to him, the, the character Rusty Savage. And you read this, this last page or so, and it's, it's so moving, the compassion that he feels for this woman. And it's just, I would read it and I, I, I felt like I, I was that character, you know, this woman with, you know, filled with secrets and doing her best. And you have to read the last couple pages to kind of figure it out. But it, it, it's the only book it's the only section of a book. If I read it out loud, I'll I'll cry because it's just it gets me every time. Wow. <laughs> so those wow. are my three favorite books. <laughs> I love that. Okay, Teresa, it's going to be thrown back to you so that we're being Pharisees, which okay. is a technical term I just made up on my podcast. <laughs> um, and I can do that because it's my podcast. Uh, <laughs> what is your least favorite book of all time? Oh wow. Um, you know, I looked at Fifty Shades of Grey and I could only read about three pages before I just wanted to pull my hair out. <laughs> it's yeah, so that bad. book makes me want to punch it, babies. It's, it's terrible. It, you know, she, was a, she was a fan fiction writer, so she's not really a writer. I mean, I know that sounds elitist, but... Well, I'll tell so you this. Horrible. I know a lot of fan fiction writers that are great writers. Yes. I think that yes. that is not... You know, especially when they have it over time, there's some that are amazing, some that are not. And just like writing about the characters, what she did was grab the coattails of something. I mean, she has a bazillion dollars. She yeah. grabbed the coattails of something and then got the best marketing campaign ever. Oh, this naughty, naughty book. That book is terribly written. It is horribly written. I don't understand her editor. Like, ugh. Anyway. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I love you. books. I, I, It's hard for me to say what book I've read that I you know that but I it's your oh, it's oh. your um it's your book choice you yeah. know what i mean yeah. like yeah. me and the jenner are going to explain this well just because you don't like it or it's a book that you don't enjoy because you know i've i've yeah. now had like 400 people on my show different people have different opinions on books yeah. it, you're allowed to have your opinion on the book it's not like yeah. well you say this and then we're gonna go destroy all those books oh wait florida um you know, it's, it's, it's not quite like that. So it's just a book you don't like. I mean, there's a lot of people that love Fifty Shades of Grey. I couldn't even get past page one. It was yeah. so bad. Like, it, yeah. Yeah. And that goes with like reading it, reading it like an editor. I, I was just like, oh, God, there's so much wrong with this. You know, I'm getting nervous. I have to put this down. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But I, I. I have so many favorite books. That's the problem. So many favorite books. Um, but yeah, those three fiction books are probably um, my three favorites. Okay. Robert, what about a book you did not like? Erica, can I, can I go with disappointing? Yes, we can go with disappointing. What is your most disappointing book? So I, I, so I hate, I hate when people say so, but anyway, so, um, like you're the authority now. What I'm about to say. So, uh, no, I, I read uh, "Sun Also Rises" 
by Hemingway. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that his first published book? You guys no idea. Not okay. a Hemingway fan. But, you know, it caught the, this is 100 years ago now, and it just caught people's relationships and traveling and Europe. And I, I just absolutely loved it. Then I started reading other Hemingway books, like the next one, Snows of Kilimanjaro. Yeah. I couldn't get through it. I could not get through it. I was so disappointed. It was so horny. And everything that I loved about Sun Also Rises was gone. And the, the rhythm of it, the words, I am thoroughly disappointed by Ernest Hemingway. My husband, Don Dupay, can't stand Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, here, here. Except for oh. Sun Also Rises, which I love. Yeah. And there is a, there, you know, it's interesting because I say something that is wildly unpopular on this show. I can't stand Jane Austen. Mm. Yeah. I cannot. Agree. Yeah. Agree. Here's the thing is that I actually, and what I realized it is, is I can't stand slow burn books. Yeah. Like yeah. There is a pace yeah. that I need the book to go. I don't yeah. care how beautifully written it is. I'm using quotation marks. I no. I just fucking get a move on. And it's not like I need the fast and the furious in my book, but I want it to be moving. Like when I write, I write, and I'm very proud of this, then I've heard it many, many times that I pull you into the story. Yeah. Like I want to read stories that I have a hard time putting down and or I fall asleep because I just get so exhausted in the wee hours of the morning reading, you know, yeah. by my Kindle's light. Um, so like, uh, I, you know, if I just can't stand slow burn books and it doesn't matter how great the author might have been. Again, it's a personal preference. I know some people who absolutely love it. There's Billions of Jane Austen fans in the world. Sure. You know, I've tried. Yeah. I've tried to read Jane Austen probably four times, and the issue is, extreme passive voice is mm -hmm. so hard to connect with. Yeah, and I just it, it's that formal, dated, extreme passive voice, and it's just like you fall asleep. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, and the, and the thing, the thing is, we're told that we're supposed to love these writers. And then, right. you know, you read them and you go, what? Yeah. 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 Well, you know what I think would be, not that they do this in school anymore anyway. I don't know that there's a lot of assigned reading because my kids is growing up. They're now in their mid twenties. We're allowed to read whatever the crap sticks they wanted to do a book report on, yeah. which led to a book report on Twilight. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think that if they taught the classics I'm using my quotation marks for what they were like. I we're going to teach what passive voice really means. Here is Pride and Prejudice, like to get it because I think that when you go, this is just a great work of fiction. Well, it's a great work of fiction to some people, but that doesn't mean it's a great work of fiction to other people. Yeah. And yeah. I think that if it was phrased differently, like yeah. this is a good story because of this, it 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 changes the narrative on reading that story. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of like a lot of the books, I think probably most of us on this particular call were forced to read. Like the only book I remember reading in school from the required reading list. Now I'm about to take that back. Um, I liked The Catcher in the Rye. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I I also liked um, To Kill a Mockingbird. I yeah. love To Kill a Mockingbird. I, I still have to was, read that. I, yeah. I still have to read that. That was <laughs> I. That was school reading. School reading, my friend. You know. But I think it takes like you have to end up really Lord of the Flies. So I take that back for three. Because Lord of Thrives, but Lord of the Flies is really interesting because a lot of people talk about it as if they've read the book. Yeah. They're, they just have the Cliff Notes version of the book, but it's so actually true so much to this day about what happens in a societal situation. Yes. In the, yeah, it's just, anyway. Absolutely. Go on forever with that. Okay. Let's, well, now all, the, all those books are burned now anyway, so you can't read them. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, luckily I have copies, but it's true. You know, my favorite book of all time is called Bimbos of the Death Sun. <laughs> Who wrote that? It it was a it's a mystery writer named Sharon McCrum. And wow. this was written a really long time ago. It's I, I'm very fortunate that friends keep finding copies in used bookstores. Wow. But it's it it was written um and you could tell she had to have been in this environment before conventions and nerd cons were cool and they were like in the basement of hotels it's it's a murder mystery set at one of these old-timey conventions and having been a nerd my entire life like i knew these people in this book it was the first book i ever laughed out loud while reading it's actually you know when you have an emotional reaction when you're reading a book and not just like it's kind of like watching TV where you're like, that was really funny versus when you watch it and you're actually laughing. Yeah. If yeah, you're by yeah. yourself, you know, so wow. can never judge a book by its name or cover. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about your favorite book that was turned into a movie or a TV series where you think they did a good job of it. Mm-hmm. Teresa. Well, okay. The, the one book that makes me laugh, I mean, from start to finish, without a doubt is um fear and loathing in las vegas mm. I oh, that was done really well oh god that's the funniest book ever um that's a good one but you know there's another book i just recently got i got a 1929 copy of it and it was turned into a movie in 1930 with paulette goddard it's called the ex-wife and it's by mm. ursula parrot and it is one of the best books i have ever read it was published in 1929 anonymously because it was a scandal. You read this book and it's like, she's talking about dynamics that are as timeless today as they were in 1929. It's one of the best books. And that also was turned into a film. Um, but yeah, I've, I've read a few books that have been turned. You know, um, I actually read only part of it, but um, The Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> Wow. with Richard Chamberlain yeah. <laughs> I love that film you know right. the book is good but the film is better um <laughs> yeah. yeah okay Robert what about you I- I'm gonna go non-fiction book again uh, all the president's men I oh. just uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward uh I just watched the film directed by Alan Pakula for the eighth time the other night on Amazon and got a refund from Amazon because it stopped a couple of times during the showing and did the little circle thing. So they, I got my $3.99 back. But that's the eighth time I've seen the film. Every time I watch this film, uh, it just, I see new things. I read the book 
when it came out back in the 70s. Uh, again, you know, it's all about the end of the Nixon regime. And the fact that they concentrate the story is really the two writers. And I love reading about writers. And it's their story. It's how they are, you know, one guy is a new guy at the Washington Post. The other guy is working on a Metro or something. And how they know that they are better when they work together. They make each other better. And they uh, interview people and, and put together this whole scenario about the Watergate break-in and Nixon and his people who were behind it. And uh, uh, yeah, it's just an incredible book. And it's one of those rare moments when a great book is made into a great movie. Very cool. Now the opposite. Where did they do a terrible job translating the book to a movie or a TV show? Oh, wow. Robert, you're up first. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, wow. It, it's probably going to be one of those best-selling books that everybody talked about, and then it came out, and you went, huh? But, ew, wow. I had somebody on the last podcast I recorded mention where the crawdads sing, because that book was actually really, really well-written. Yeah. That movie was fucking terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, I, you know, what it's interesting is that some a co-host I used to have said to me that you should treat movies of books like fan fiction. Mm. So because you're never going to get everything that the book encapsulated into the movie, you're just not oh. going to get that. But to me, there's tends to be kind of a heart to the story or a part of the story you can tell really, really well. Yeah. And you have to choose what part it is and start it from the right part of the story that you're going to tell. And they did not do that in where the crawdads sing. Yeah. You know, okay. I've got one. Go. I'm going to stay with Carl Bernstein for a second. Okay. His, his ex-wife, Nora Ephron, Nora Ephron wrote a great book among other great books and screenplays and stuff that she wrote called heartburn. Great book. Terrible movie. Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep just didn't work. Wow. Didn't work. Yeah. Okay. Well, for you know, for a number of reasons, maybe maybe the material was just too tough to translate to the big screen. And it you takes know, a skilled writer to write a story from because in books there's so much exposition. I think this is the key that a lot of people don't realize. Yeah. Very few books don't have a lot of exposition to get to trying to tell the story. Yeah. They're, they're supposed to have a lot of exposition because that's oh. what gets you to set the scene to whatever, which is not built for film medium or TV. I've, I've written a lot of play plays like, you know, and I've written screenplays and stuff like that. And it's very different taking the contents and trying to show somebody something versus I think, you know, or tell somebody something because you have little things where you go, oh, how's your ex-dad today? You know, your ex-husband today. 
Well, in the book, there's a whole story that leads to how you oh. know that's the person's ex-husband. Yeah. And in the TV show, you got to go, how's your ex-husband, Rob? Just yeah. to get that wrapped up. All the exposition yeah. gone, wrapped up. We know he's an ex-husband. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, because there's there's no time. You got to keep moving. You know, you, you don't have the time to have that five-minute story about the ex. You know, so, yeah. Agreed. Okay, Teresa. Go oh, start. You know, I think yeah. that probably the worst... Uh, the worst um, film made from a book was the film uh, Adaptation, which was based on the Susan Orlean book, The Orchid Thief, which I loved and is a hilarious book about John LaRoche, who used to go to the Fakahatchee Strand in Florida and steal the ghost orchids. And it's kind of a, you know, I'm not sure if, if she wrote it as nonfiction or kind of a novelized uh, book, but it, it's basically a true story that it's called The Orchid Thief. And they did this film called Adaptation with Nicolas Cage kind of based on it. And it was horrible. It was mm -hmm. dark and stupid. And it didn't, it just didn't capture the essence of the book um, right. by Susan Orlean. It's one of my favorite books. It's called The Orchid Thief. Such a good book. Um, definitely a terrible uh, a film adaptation. They call it, it's called Adaptation. <laughs> Wow. God, totally okay. Disappointing. I remember watching it. And I was like, this is ridiculous, you know? So a couple more questions before we end off here. Um, what is your favorite weird food combination? <laughs> I have a lot. Okay, <laughs> Teresa, let's hear a couple of them. Let's do it. Um, well, I love, I love garlic mashed potatoes with a big plate of raw vegetables. Um, but I love to eat, um, I love uh, to make vegetable delight, which is a kind of a vegetarian stir fry dish and cover it with blackened cashews. I don't know if that's weird, but I love I it. That's how weird that favorite. is, I think. Okay, Robert, you're gonna have to one up her weirdness because uh, that I, wasn't very weird. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I can even beat that. I, I, am, I am an onion freak. I love onions. Onions. So you'll see me having a hamburger, and most of it is onion with a little piece of meat underneath it. It's ridiculous, but that's actually how I like them too. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go to once in a while. We'll get a cheeseburger at a restaurant. I always ask for extra onions. And oh like yeah, this much onion. Yeah, yeah. My my wife will say, "Why don't you have a hamburger with that piece of onion you have?" You know, it's yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. Okay, if you guys could be any mythological creature or fantastical creature, what would you be? Hmm. Um, I'd probably be a unicorn. I like it, I like it. Unicorn, wow. <laughs> because what? I could fly. Oh. So a Pegasus yeah. unicorn, okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. I, I, I don't have a character, but yeah, I'm going to go with flying. Anything with flying is. How about a dragon, Robert? Do you want to be a dragon? They're pretty. No, no I, I don't want to be that large and I don't want to like breathe flames and stuff. I just, I just want to take off and fly. Okay. I don't know what that is, though. You could be yeah, a dragon. I'm really bad at this. Sorry. You That's okay. Griffin. Yeah, Griffin. Griffin's fly. Oh, Griffin. Yeah, of course. There you go. G R Y P H O N. 
Yes, you could totally do that. There we go. Okay, so um, final question, then we'll do some shameless self-promotion. If you could go into any literary world, actually, I'm going to ask you two questions. I want this one and I want one other one from you too. If you could go into any literary universe, where would you want to go? New York. <laughs> Does that answer your question? What literary universe is New York? Just the New York publishing scene. I was talking about like Narnia. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, wow. That's Robert, do you have an answer? Yeah. Teresa, while you're, while you're thinking, does this work going like 1920s Paris? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. The whole image of sitting outdoor, you know, at the table with your little cup of coffee and talking to John Paul Sartre and, you know, jotting down things and then going back to your room and drinking some more and then writing something and starting it all over the next day. And that whole 20s Paris that well, uh, sun also rises, you know, that's part of it. Actually, that's why I love that. Actually, I, 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 I've written three papers on the, um, the expatriate movement, so I second that. If I could go to a, a place in the universe, a literary place in the universe, it would be 1920s Paris, the yeah. expatriate movement, Juna yeah. Barnes, um, yeah. F. Scott Fitzgerald, yeah. even Ernest Hemingway, et cetera. Yeah, sure. yeah definitely. Well, well, just don't sit at the same table with Robert and Ernest. It'll be fine. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> um, so, okay, then if you guys could have lunch with any author, living or dead, who would you want to have lunch with? Mm. Scott Turow. Why? He's amazing. And um, I sent him an email about six years ago. I, I went online. I thought, you know, I'm just going to Google Scott Turow's email. And I found his email and I sent him an email and I told him that he could have written this one book a little bit better. It was kind of tongue in cheek. And he responded. Wow. And so we've emailed each other every every two or three years. And um, I think he just kind of puts up with me. I'm a huge fan. He's super smart. I loved his one of his first books. It was called, um, it was his book about being in law school at Harvard called, uh, uh, what was it? Um, something L. It's it's uh, when he was in uh, first uh, first a freshman in law school at Harvard. And he's just, uh, he's just a, a writer that I, I've admired for so long. And the, those last two pages of Presumed Innocent, the only writing that if I read it out loud will reduce me to tears. Um, and some people might read it and think this is a little hokey, you know, it's not that good or whatever, but he's just a writer that I've always really admired and it would be a thrill to meet him, you know, and he's still alive. <laughs> Yeah. Very cool. Robert, what about you? I'm gonna get I'm gonna go nonfiction again. Uh Michael Palin, ex of Monty Python and movies and TV shows, uh has written well a number of books about his travel shows and all that stuff, but he has three diary books where he writes about each day for like you know, they're 10 or 12 years per book. And there's stuff going on. Then there's, uh, you know, with career, there's stuff going on with family. His sister uh, committed suicide, uh, on and on and on and on. 
and to make each single day, you know, you mentioned Teresa writing something down every day to make each day interesting is like, wow. And I can't stop reading. He's got three of them so far. I think, I think he's working on a fourth, uh, another big hunk of time, uh, book coming out. Uh, but to make each day that interesting is like, wow, that, that is incredible. Uh, so anyway, I'd like to sit down with him and, uh, yeah, have a coffee and just talk, you know, about his, his life in, you know, half an hour. Awesome. Awesome. You guys have been so much fun for part two of the podcast. Same here, Erica. You're pretty good yeah. at this. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. You've That's only, what you made me the big bucks. You've they only interviewed 500 people. <laughs> I'm drunk most of the time when I'm doing it, though. So win-win. <laughs> win-win for me. Just kidding. Um, so let's do shameless self-promotion. Teresa, I'm going to let you start. Where do people find you in your 20,000 Twitter handles? <laughs> um, you can find me on Facebook. Um, my, my my Facebook name is Teresa Kennedy Dupay. That's my legal name, but I'm on Twitter, Teresa Griffin Kennedy. I have two Instagram pages on Twitter. One's private, one's public. Um, I have a Substack page, Teresa Griffin Kennedy. I have a Medium page, um, and I'm also on Muckrack. <laughs> Although I'm not certified, I'm not a verified journalist, but so. <laughs> well. <laughs> You're not verified. No, just kidding. Right. <laughs> Robert, what about you? Uh, I have a uh, Facebook page, which people told me to get 10 years ago to move product. Uh, Robert Crane, along with, uh, yeah, you'll see, uh, I'm sorry, I got to do this again. You'll see this on the uh, page, so you'll know it's that, uh, the real one. And then uh, Robert David Crane on Amazon. Very cool. And the book that you that inspired you to be on this podcast. It's got to be this one. Beyond Where the Buses. Beyond Where the Buses Run. Stories. stories. Yeah. Uh, edited by Teresa Griffin Kennedy. Cover photo by Joe Coyle, who could not be with us today. Beautiful photo. Yeah. yeah love it. Very, very cool. You guys are amazing. Thank you for being on the podcast with me. Thanks, Erica. Absolutely. Guys, this has been Drinking with Authors. Don't forget to like, (laughs) subscribe, leave a comment. Um, We'd love to hear from you, and we'll see you next time.